0: These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to Episode 116 of the Headspace and Timing Podcast. Today, my guest is Dr. Shauna Springer, the Senior Director for the Tragedy Assistant Program for Survivors Suicide Prevention and Postvention Program.
1: I had a conversation just last week with a Marine who talked about meeting up with a former battle buddy and uh, actually somebody who outranked him. And that person brought up the topic of fear when you're in a combat zone, you know, that sometimes we don't even admit to feeling intense fear when you're about to go into combat and things are about to go kinetic. And so just talking about the fear that they experienced helped both of them just, dissolve that fear, the shame around the fear that's generated when those things stay hidden. So there is a real and just profound power in flushing these things out with people that are safe to hear them and that don't think any differently of you, that you can just reckon with them and and confront them head on to really move through them.
0: Before we kick off the interview, I'd like to bring you a quick message from Dr. Barbara Van Dalen founder and president of Given Hour, about an event that's coming up June 9th through the 15th.
2: I'm Dr. Barbara Van Dalen, founder and president of Given an Hour and the Campaign to Change Direction. We want everyone to join us the second week of June for a Week to Change Direction and the Change Direction Jam. Together, we're changing the culture of mental health. Events during the week can happen anywhere and everywhere. We're so excited to work with IBM to create this global discussion. Mark your calendar, register, and join us to Change Direction. Go to changedirection.org. That's changedirection.org to learn more.
0: Here at Headspace and Timing, we'll be joining Give an Hour during that week. The podcast episode that week will be with Dr. Van Dalen, and that week's blog post is going to focus on the campaign to change direction. Longtime listeners will know that our mission is to change the way that we think and talk about federal mental health, and the campaign to change direction is doing exactly that. Make sure to check them out at changedirection.org. Welcome to the Headspace and Timing podcast, a show dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes around veteran mental health. My name is Dwayne France, and I'm a retired Army non-commissioned officer and a combat veteran of both Iraq and Afghanistan. After retiring from the Army, I took on a new mission as a clinical mental health counselor for my fellow service members. If you served in any branch of the military, then you're familiar with the M2 machine gun, the 50 Cal. It's one of the most effective weapons in the military's arsenal. If the weapon's headspace and timing wasn't set correctly, however, it was just a useless chunk of metal. Veterans can be rendered inoperable if their headspace and timing's not set correctly either. That's my goal with this show, to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health and reduce the stigma against seeking support. Each week, we'll talk with mental health professionals, veterans, and those who support service members, veterans, and their families. We're going to have real and honest conversations about a topic that most just don't like to talk about, veteran mental health. Let's jump into this week's conversation. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Headspace and Timing podcast once again and as always, we really appreciate you taking the time to listen and learn more about veteran mental health. Uh, today's guest is uh, is one that I've uh, been having a, a couple conversations with over the last several months. Uh, a while back, I put out a um, a call to some of my connections on who I should have on the podcast to talk about federal mental health, and a number of our mutual connections um, said that uh, I should really reach out and talk to Doc Springer. Uh, and so, my guest today is Shauna Springer. She's uh, the TAP Suicide Prevention and Postvention Senior Director. Um, she works for the uh, the Tragedy Assistant Program for Survivors, uh, which is a great organization. Again, I've been wanting to highlight them on the show for a while. So, Shauna, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Dwayne. It's good to be here.
0: Yeah, I, I really appreciate it. I, I've enjoyed our previous conversations and looking forward to this one. Um, so it definitely, as I'd mentioned, I'm, I've been wanting to get involved and talk about what TAPS is doing for um, the Gold Star families and survivors. But before we get into that, I want to give you an opportunity to tell the audience a little bit about yourself and and sort of how you came to work with veterans and their families.
1: Sure. So I've been working with veterans um, in the community for well over a decade, Um, spent eight years of that time doing really in-the-trenches, frontline work with veterans, And now in my current role as the Senior Director at TAPS for Suicide Prevention Initiatives, um, I still get to do quite a bit of work directly with veterans in terms of retreats and special functions that we do from time to time, but mainly in terms of going out and doing trainings and doing consultation um, and, and things like that, including briefings with the active duty military. And actually last year I was at the Air Force Academy there in beautiful Colorado Springs, to do a big suicide prevention briefing for a couple uh, classes of cadets there um, on behalf of CAPS.
0: Yeah, we um, it definitely, a lot of people come to Colorado Springs to visit, and uh, it seems just as, uh, just as special to us who live here. Um, yeah, but that's great. So you've been working with veterans for about 10 years. Um, I'm always interested to hear um, how you got into that, um, what it was first like, what it was like for you to first start working with veterans.
1: So my first experience working with veterans was at the Gainesville VA. Um, During my internship, I did a rotation at the Gainesville VA. And it wasn't the whole year. It was just a third of the year. And there was something different about that work, about the groups that I worked with. Um, It just felt like a really good fit. And I've been trying to figure it out ever since. (laughs) Uh, And I think, you know, the best I can kind of determine is that it's kind of a sweet spot for me because um, I am somebody who really cares about service. My values, even though I never served in the military, align really well with uh, military values because of certain unique aspects of how I was raised um, and some of the international service projects and traveling that I did even as a very young person. Um, and then I think that the kind of female I am just is a good fit with the population um, because I don't elicit from veterans the need to protect me. I think they feel like they can share anything that they need to with me and I'll be fine. Um, but I'm also um maybe not somebody they see quite as, you know, in the, the hierarchy as somebody that uh, they need to sort of feel there's a rank issue with. You know, I think I'm able to kind of come alongside, if that makes sense, in a really special way that that really feels like a, a good fit. So it's been over 10 years, but um, that's how it kind of developed, you know, over time. Does that make sense?
0: It does. And in, in, uh, how you um, describe that you're not someone who a veteran feels as though they have to protect. And th- this is actually something that I've heard from a number of the veterans that I've worked with, is that uh, they're as much concerned about laying their burden on other people. Um, their family, of course, you know. I don't want my family to feel like this, but but also when it sometimes comes to clinicians, um, they want to protect the clinician because that's what we do, right? You know, we we uh, preserve and protect and and we care for the people around us, and, and so that kind of attitude for some veterans can kind of get in the way of of doing some real work in therapy.
1: Right. No, absolutely. I think if um if they feel like they have to hold back from sharing whatever it is that needs to be discussed, it's definitely going to limit their ability to grow through whatever kinds of pain and, and hidden, you know, sort of possible traumas that they've experienced that, that all has to be flushed out and reckoned with. And so um, I think it's important as well for clinicians to do their part in communicating, you don't need to protect me. Um, I am radically safe to hear whatever you need to share. And I won't judge you. And um, we can do the work that we need to do here. That's what we're here to do. Um, so that, you know, it's sort of on both sides, I think, um, things could change a little bit.
0: No, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, I, I definitely believe that if a clinician—and we do have some um, clinicians that listen to the show—but if a clinician is considering working with veterans or has found themselves working with veterans in the community, um, that there has to be a level of preparation. Um, the 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 provider needs to prepare to one, to be honest with themselves, to say that you know, can I listen to this? Can I can I um, you know can I deal with with what? What I'm going to start hearing. My clinical director is a, uh, a, a is an excellent clinician, but she's been a sex offender provider for years, uh, you know, 15 years. And, and I take my hat off to her. I'm like hey, better you than me, right? And because not not everybody can work with um, you know certain populations. So a clinician who wants to or is considering working with veterans, and perhaps you'd seen this in some of your consultation, you really have to take a look at yourself and say, Am I the right person to be sitting across from a veteran?
1: Yep. And there's work you need to do, as you said, to get ready for that work with veterans. And that includes really taking it upon yourself to understand military culture and veteran culture, not just from a, a book reading perspective. Although I love to read and you can learn a lot from books, but from actually getting out there and working alongside veterans. And I think that's really changed, you know, how I practice was going out and serving with veterans. In organizations, great organizations like Team Rubicon, uh, really shifted my ability to relate to and understand what it feels like to be on a kind of deployment. It's not a combat deployment, but a disaster response deployment and really work as a team on one mission. Uh, you cannot get that from books. So you have to be the kind of person who's willing to, uh, be a little bit unconventional and take some risks and Maybe, um, you know, have very good boundaries, but also be really putting the people that you're trying to work with ahead of maybe your comfort level at times until it becomes comfortable for you to uh, really serve veterans in the way that they deserve to be to be served.
0: You know, I, I can uh, definitely recognize that. I mean, of course, um, it, there there simply aren't enough of of you know like me it, veterans, much less combat veterans in the clinical mental health field. And so, if a veteran says, "All you know, I can only speak to or I can only work with a therapist who's a veteran," there's just not enough of us, and and it's not necessarily true, which is you know something that you've shown and and that you've proven. Um, you know, but or and veterans are a very maybe insular team, you know, tribe, let's sort of, how was it for you being accepted into that group, into the veteran tribe?
1: Yeah, it's, I'm still kind of amazed by it, you know, the extent to which there isn't any tension there and there's an openness and there's a mutual acceptance and a mutual respect and trust um, that I have when I work with the veterans that I serve. Um, I think that's where a lot of my childhood experiences and background kind of came in because, as I said, I never served in the military. I wouldn't want to represent that I did, but I did a lot of travel to a lot of um, places that were sort of well outside of what we typically see growing up most of the time in the United States. And so really working with and living with and being embedded with people from different cultures and getting comfortable with that. I think helped me to really relate to veterans. Um and it gave me a real leg up uh, maybe on on those who had really um been in school perhaps um but hadn't had some of the foreign travel experience that I was I was fortunate to have um before becoming a psychologist. So I'm a big proponent of you know really getting outside the classroom, you know, study hard, but that's not the only way to learn, and that's not the only way to learn how to connect with people. Um, and it's, it's a partial education. Uh, so really getting out into the world and relating to people is, is really very important for this work.
0: No, and, and you're right. And even, you know, getting out into the world, right? Veterans have a more global viewpoint than maybe somebody in their community who, you know, I've got cousins that rarely leave, uh, Missouri, much less St. Louis, right? You know, that, that, you know, just not having that, you know, um, that access to that understanding of of how other people live in the world. And I can see how, you know, when you've been overseas and, and perhaps if you've been on mission trips or, or, or you know, um, service trips or relief organizations and things like that, um, that you truly see how challenging things are and you're not worried when you come back and your coffee is not quite as hot, right? And so those... Those World problems don't mean quite so much. And that's what a lot of veterans experience when they come back is, you know, we understand what, what real life, real world life is about. Um, and then, you know, somebody comes back and they're complaining because, you know, of traffic or, or takes them 10 minutes longer to get somewhere. Um, there's a real disconnect for a lot of veterans. And I can see how that global viewpoint from your standpoint, from your travels, has really helped.
1: Yeah, it really does recalibrate what you see as important. Um, it also teaches you about different cultures and how to be flexible, um, how to live with frustration when you're not in a place that's comfortable. Um, and beyond that, you know, I think one of the reasons why our warfighters are such an asset to society is that they have done these missions that have given them a sense of what it feels like to trust somebody so completely and to love somebody that you would lay down your life for them. Um, and those kinds of things I think are really unique and they make our warfighters and our veterans, anyone who's served, uh, irreplaceable assets to society. So my suicide prevention work is grounded in that, that understanding and some of the other pieces about living in other cultures and experiencing, um, different things that recalibrate my sense of what's important. I think those things are are things that veterans and service members maybe instinctively realize that we um, see in a similar way. So that's why it's been uh, easier, I think, to build the trust in some cases.
0: Right. And, and those things don't necessarily have to go along with combat. You know, you care and concern and, and putting your life in someone else's hands and having their life in yours. I mean, yes, that is an actual um, you know, at combat experience, but, but also if you're just enduring any type of hardship. Um, you know, there is a lot of affinity for law enforcement, first responders, um, you know, it, things like that. Some of those, because they have a veteran community, you know, there's a large number of veterans that transition into those jobs. Um, but also just a, sort of a recognized respect of, you know, you, you put your life on the line, you've chosen a profession that you choose to serve others and things like that. And so, um, again, having Uh, Finding out what's more common with veterans, and so you can say, "Look, I I understand this aspect of it. I don't know what the sound of a you know a a dish go round hitting the windshield sounds like, but all the other pieces, I really understand it."
1: Yeah, no, I'm glad you said that, Dwayne, because I think there's a lot of overlap between our first responders and those who serve in the the armed forces. It's just that real orientation to service and a sense of kind of having a moral core, a warrior code, if you will, that is true for a lot of our first responders as well. And it's definitely not that there's total overlap, as you said, but there's enough overlap that you can bridge the trust and then kind of go from there.
0: Right, and, and this may even be you know looking um, at it from your your suicide prevention uh, and postvention intervention lens. Um, you know, there's a national conversation around veteran mental health, of course, right? You know, this podcast and and many people, the VA is looking at it, and, and private organizations all over the place. But there's not really a national conversation around first responder mental health. Um, and arguably, and from uh, this definitely isn't my um, my area of expertise, but I understand that the suicide rate in um, in the first responder community are just as egregious as they are in the veteran community.
1: Well, yeah, the suicide rate across the country as a whole is um, something that we all need to kind of really look at. Most people, I find, don't know that we lose more to suicide than to car accidents mm-hmm. um, or, or homicide, um, let alone, you know, hostile acts of war. So it's, it's a really... Um, interesting thing because it's an intensely private battle and at the same time it's something that has started to become quite visible in the media and in the press. Um, and we do a lot of work at TAPS with how to safely talk about suicide um, so that we can uh, decrease the risk for those who are impacted by suicide loss. Uh, veterans, military service members, first responders, they are impacted uh, by By many uh times over the the loss of others that they love, not at the end of their lifespan in a sort of natural way, but in these sudden unpredictable violent uh deaths. You know so they have a grief burden that is uh disproportionate relative to the population at large. But suicide is a society wide problem that doesn't just apply to to veterans and first responders.
0: No, you're absolutely true. A colleague of mine, uh, Tony Williams, he he often says it's a national problem, uh, but requires a local solution. Right. You know, every community is different and you need to have different resources um, in different communities. But really, that community response. Um, not just local response, but like, say, the, the veteran community, the first responder community, or the, the, the survivor community is what TAPS has really, um, helped develop is a community of individuals that have this, this shared experience. Um, I, I wonder if you'd like to talk a little bit about what, uh, TAPS is and, and what they, what they do.
1: I'd love to. So TAPS, Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors, is a uh, national nonprofit based in the Washington DC area. And, um, we provide compassionate care to all those who are grieving the loss of a military loved one, whether active duty or veteran. Um, and the survivors are anyone who is impacted, um, by loss. And we don't, uh, we don't turn anyone away based on the type of loss. So we have, um, loss due to hostile acts of war, we have accidents, uh, we have illnesses, and we have suicide loss. Um, and it used to be that the hostile acts of war was our largest uh, referral reason, you know, that most of our referrals came from combat deaths. And now that has been eclipsed um, by suicide deaths, unfortunately. So, you know, part of that is, you know, as the, the war has sort of Tapered down relatively, um, and we've started to sort of see, uh, some, some different types of losses, um, that has shifted somewhat. So, yeah, we have a whole range of services. Uh, we offer 24-7 availability of the TAPS helpline. Um, and I'll just, um, drop that in. It's, uh, 1-800-959-8277. one 800 959 taps and survivors um, of a military loss can call twenty four seven and get a variety of help from practical things like casework to peer support, peer mentoring. Uh we have regional events. We will have our big uh national survivor national military survivor seminar coming up over Memorial Day weekend in Washington DC, which pulls in well over a thousand survivors uh for a, a weekend of healing. So that's just a snapshot, but we do so much training and consultation with private entities, with the VA, um, with special forces, with just different military bases when they've had a suicide loss or they want to have some uh, suicide prevention um, training or briefings.
0: You know, that is... Um it's dis- disheartening, but it's not surprising to hear that uh, uh, now most of the survivors are um, are the family members or those that are left behind by suicide. Um, I often say that uh, we veterans, and, and I include myself in this, have lost more um, since we've come back from combat than we did during combat. I know that's uh, especially true for me and um, in, in individuals who, who I served with. Um, and and you know as well as I do is that, um, it often just doesn't happen one at a time. And this is where I, I guess I, I'd, I'd like to hear more about your work specifically in, um, suicide prevention in TAPS is because, um, you know, there's the, consider the suicide contagion effect or the cluster of suicides, but, but it could almost be a domino effect, um, where, where it's actually impacting across, uh, across relationships or even across generations.
1: Right. So there are definitely, heightened risks for those who are impacted by suicide loss, by any type of loss, really. But suicide loss is a uniquely complicated healing journey because there's often trauma and um, a lot of unresolved feelings and emotions come up. I remember sitting at the VA in those sessions um, before I came to TAPS with veteran patients who had lost a battle buddy to suicide, and those were really high-stakes sessions where I really felt like they were um, potentially at risk. There was so much uh, rage in the room without any clear target, uh, sometimes directed at themselves. You know, why didn't I do more? Why didn't I see it? Um, a feeling of responsibility. I think in the military there's so much training and culture that goes towards being each other's keepers, um, but we can't, you know, always know what's on the inside of our brothers and sisters if they don't share and they don't say what's going on inside. Um, so there's this sense of responsibility, um, even if nobody really uh, could have known based on the information that was shared by that person who died. Um, there's also just so much survivor guilt and fear, uh, sort of like what if um, the same thing happened to me? And what if I, you know, became overcome with a desire to end my life? So all of those feelings, you know, again, had to really be talked about and um, talked about and addressed and confronted very directly. Um, And so that kind of loops back to our earlier conversation about the importance of having a doc that you trust and that you don't need to protect because all of that information Needs to come out in a safe place with a person you trust, so that it doesn't ambush you later. Um, so let me stop there because I don't want to talk and talk.
0: <laughs> no, I, I mean that's that's great stuff, and, and you're absolutely correct. I, I've seen it um, with the veterans that I've worked with as well. You know, when they say that you know I'm one of the last ones of my team, or um, in anecdotally, this is definitely not anything that I have any. Um, uh, any data to back up but medics especially um, have because some of their role or, or their role in uh, combat is especially to take care of those um, and they feel that burden to care for their brothers and sisters um, long after they're gone and then when they're not there you know to quote-unquote take care of them um, when they come back, like they were on the battlefield, they still continue. So it's almost like, um, you know, failures of, I know I can't save anybody on the battlefield, but it's just constant failure over failure over failure. And then that idea of, well, this person was so strong and, and it was such a shock. Um, they're stronger. I always saw them as stronger than me. And if they could succumb to it, um, then, then what's going to happen to me? This is really senior NCOs and officers, chaplains, uh, mental health clinicians, these are quote unquote, if it can happen to those people, it, it could happen to me.
1: But suicide can be prevented. Right. When we we'll talk about the kind of hidden pain that is eating them alive with the people that they uh, trust, suicide can be prevented. And there's also these really hopeful movements of veterans that I've been working with. There's a group of Marines in Texas that is doing phenomenal work keeping their tribe together, really reaching out pulling in more members of the tribe, including their medics. And and you're you're right, medics use some of the worst trauma um and feel a sense of responsibility sometimes um for their for their brothers and sisters. Uh that's a you know unique uh unique challenge for some of them. Um but there's also these really like groundswells of uh veterans that are coming together and changing their culture, how they talk about their hidden pain and how they address it directly and and how they help each other through it. Um, so the other side of it is that as long as people are really willing to come together and to keep the tribe strong and build out their tribe, including their home front tribe, their spouses and the people that they trust from home, then suicide can absolutely be prevented.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, you know, of course, one of the things in, uh, you know, um, uh, Dr. Joyner's interpersonal theory of, of suicide regarding isolation, right? You know, isolation is a, a big factor in a sense of burdensomeness. Um, and so not being isolated is a protective factor against, and when I say getting closer to the edge of that cliff, um, that that you don't even get to the edge of that cliff because you have that strong network in, in, you're referring, it, it definitely, it sounds like the Marines in Texas, but many of the organizations, um, peer support and peer support is also an aspect of what, um, TAPS does. Um, I, I'd like to hear your thoughts on peer support as it supports clinical mental health providers, but also how clinical mental health providers can support those who are engaging in peer support.
1: Yeah. I'm so glad you asked. So, Before I was at TAPS, I actually helped launch the peer support program at the VA where I worked and had a really amazing partnership with a veteran, Navy veteran, who um, worked very closely with me and we developed a lot of uh, new programs because we saw gaps that were there with how we bring veterans into care, how we engage them in care, how we continue them through the care process. Uh, So that was a really critical example for me of how it's not one or the other. You know, I think sometimes people say, is peer support or clinical support more effective Um, when actually it's artfully combining both really good peer support and clinical support in many cases will really help people um, grow. And so TAPS uh, has been long known to be a leader in the field in terms of best practice peer support. And we're actually doing uh, trainings next month for the state of Montana in terms of best practice peer support. Um, in 2017, we did a systematic review of best practice for the peer support of bereaved individuals. And we actually found that there are eight essential qualities of effective peer support programs. So we'll be talking about those qualities of peer support programs and even very specific things like what are the qualities of a, a good peer supporter? You know, when you're hiring a, a support specialist, what do they need to, um, what kind of qualities personally do they need to come in with? What can you build in them with good training and supervision?
0: See, and I, I think that's critical. Of course, um, you know, we hear a lot, just like as we were talking before about, some clinicians may want to jump into working with veterans, thinking they're doing a good job and not being fully aware of of what the issue is. Um, you know, some organizations may jump into peer support, but not really have a basic understanding of of the impact of of maybe some of the things they're doing on the psychological health and wellness of of the the veterans or the survivors that they're working with. Um, I, I really appreciate how you said that it is a um, uh, you know a both you know it's a both and not either or uh, because there are roles as us as clinicians play um, simply due to our our you know role as a therapist uh, and then there's the role that the peer plays um, and and in many ways you have become uh, again accepted by the tribe and a peer um i think when we first connected i i um uh, heard uh mike ergo was one of the ones that suggested that i connect with you so mike is a, a, a veteran like myself and you know maybe we might be considered super peers but we're clinicians right you know we have the lived experience but we have the clinical training um but peers also need to have at least a basic understanding of mental health Um, so that they know that when the veteran or, or, you know, when the person that they're working with, when it gets out of their realm of expertise, that they turn around and have somebody that they can sort of hand them off to.
1: Yeah, right. It's a partnership. To me, it's, it's building trust with veteran peers and people with lived experience and having interesting blends of lived experience and clinical support. You know, I draw from my lived experience not as a combat veteran, but as somebody who has done a lot of in- interesting international travels. Um, so it's a little bit different. But, you know, really combining forces and respecting and I think supervising and supporting peers is really critical, but also um, respecting them, you know, respecting that they have a role to play and that we're stronger if we do it together. There were so many times at the VA where I would say, you know, um I'm having a little bit of trouble developing trust with this person. Um, can you take him on a walk and talk? And just doing that with the peer, you know, he'd just kind of open up to the peer. And then there was something that could happen from that that was really beautiful because the peer and I had such trust and respect. Um, it's something that I talk about in some of my writing as the principle of transfer of trust, which is that you can try and develop trust one-on-one individually, starting from scratch with every veteran that you work with, or you can develop trust and respect with a veteran super peer or peer. And then the the power that they have to say, it's all right. You can trust her. She knows her stuff. She can help, or he knows his stuff, whoever it is. um, They can really help you move several steps ahead instead of starting from scratch. Um, and at TAPS, you know, we have these amazing TAPS peer mentors who have lived experience, and that is critical to help survivors of loss, to really match them with people who have had similar types of loss and help people figure out ways to handle very practical things like, how do I talk to my child about the fact that his mother or father died by suicide? How do I say that? Um, the peers that we have at TAPS have been there and can really help people figure out really important pra- practical things um, like that, to really walking with people for as long as they need the help. So peer support is critical.
0: Now, and, and you brought out a couple of points there that um, that reminded me of some conversations that I've had before about how uh, veterans in, in many ways need permission to... Talk about mental health um, from other veterans, not not permission like I will allow you to do this, but it's OK to do this. I, I've done this and 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 there's almost a, a need, just like you look to your squad leader when you were a, a young soldier is, you know, am I on the right track um, that and I can see a peer coming in and, and really um, uh, helping that veteran say, you know what, this is okay. And not only is it okay to talk about this, it's okay to talk about it with this particular individual. And so I can definitely see peers. And I'm not saying that I, as a clinician, um, don't need a, a to partner with a peer. Um, I do with with various different organizations in our community um, because peers really just talk on a different level. Uh, but then that idea of transfer of trust, I really like that. And this is something that I often do when I work with veterans in the community um, in that, you know, I, I I call it offloading trust. They don't really trust the VA because they think the VA is this, you know, huge bureaucracy. But I know a lot of the clinicians in the VA, and I trust them. And I said, you trust me, I trust them, therefore you can trust them. And, and again, being able to offload that trust.
1: Yeah, that's that's what I call the transfer of trust. So if the organization just looks like kind of a big dragon to somebody, but then you can say, well, actually, there are really good people in that VA clinic, and that was true where I worked too. There were some really good people who were mission-oriented that came to work at the VA because they wanted to serve, um, and they were good. And so, being able to, you know, transfer that trust from provider to provider, from peer to provider, it can make a critical difference for someone who's difficult um, to engage in care.
0: Yeah, and that's great. And I think that, and and I. Also, I agree. Um, I consider peer support um, very significant. I've had, um, you know, a buddy of mine, Bennett Tanton, who is a peer support specialist on the show before. Um, but maybe here's an idea. And this is one of the things that perhaps many people have been frustrated with um, peer support is there's really no one standard um, peer support training, especially when it comes to veteran mental health. Not that we really need a national standard, um, but this is, again, just speculation on my part, but why couldn't we create mental health peers the same way that we, you know, provide um, uh, training for um, EMTs, right? You can, I can go to a local community college um, and go through, you know, um, a, a semester or two semesters of college and come out with basic EMT certifications, Um, Why wouldn't we do that? Because that's what I see peers are essentially sort of the first responders, the EMTs that are usually right there on the line. And what the EMT does is very different than what the emergency room doctor does.
1: Right. I mean, that is definitely a vision that I share with you, Dwayne. And in fact, you know, doing the the training for the Montana um, VA and Montana Mayor's Challenge, we are going to focus on best practice peer support how do you build a best practice peer support program? How do you find the right peers? How do you support them? And what kind of qualities must the program have? Um, and so I'm hoping that that grows legs because I think that, you know, based on, we did a systematic review of, of best practice last year, 2017. Excuse me, wasn't quite last year, but very recently at TAPS. Um, and TAPS is really... Um, figured out the peer thing for well over, you know, two decades, um, in the the suicide prevention and postvention team, we've supported over our long, you know, sort of, um, period at TAPS, we've supported over 11,000 survivors of, uh, suicide loss. And so over all of that time, just refining and refining what needs to happen for this peer support to be effective how do we best support those who are impacted by suicide with the peer support that we offer um, has really given us some unique levels of insight. So I totally share your vision.
0: Yeah, maybe uh, if we can get some more people on board, we can take it nationwide. And but this is in and, and this really has to be able to uh, be seen by the benefit to individuals. And this is where um, I or, or or those of us who believe in peer support have to turn around to our colleagues and say, you know, look, it's it's not all therapy in the room, as you just said or as you said earlier, um, talking about you know going on a deployment with Team Rubicon, right? Getting out of the therapy office um, and and getting some live experience around the the veterans that you work with, because if you only see them you know, in the therapy hour and and that's all you know about them, um, then you're not going to be as effective with this particular population. Maybe not with any population, but in my experience, especially with veterans.
1: It's really critical. And I think it takes a certain level of humility to be able to say, I'm going to put the veterans' needs first, and maybe it's not me on this particular aspect of, of where they may need to grow. So, for example, you know, I have ways of talking with veterans that generally went really, really well in terms of firearm safety conversations. Um, but there were some veterans that I was seeing where I thought, you know what? It would be better if I asked the peer that I have this trust and respect with to take this conversation to the next level because he can pull them aside and, and say, you know, I own firearms, so there's no, you know, sort of looking at you with any motivation, even perceived if inaccurate to, uh, remove any firearms from you. It's just not about that. Um, it's about, you know, safety and how are you storing them? And when you're having thoughts of taking yourself out, what are you doing about that to keep others safe? You know, if you're really dedicated to protecting other people, um, from the massive collateral damage, of uh, losing you, then what are you doing to keep your loved ones safe? And he can have that conversation in ways that are just different than I was able to have uh, with some patients. And so I think it just goes back to that partnership um, and really being humble enough to say what's best for this person right now um, and going with that plan.
0: No, I absolutely recognize that, and, and clinicians who may be listening um, know this: that that if if we're working with a, a particular client and and we're just not you know connecting, um, then it's up to us to help find the right clinician for that uh, for that client, and a veteran in this case. Um, I've had the same situation in which. Uh, you know, the whole senior NCO as a therapist thing didn't actually work for them because some of their problems in the military were around how they were treated by senior NCOs. You know, and so just recognizing that you know this isn't you know I personally am not the right fit, knowing that I'm not going to be the 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 guy or or you're not going to be the gal that is able to touch every veteran. And I mean, we need to make sure that we put the needs of the veteran. And I think this goes to all of the organizations. Many people um, in in the veteran space. I say you're in love with their own solution and they think that the veteran needs their solution, that we need to understand the service member, the veteran, the family member, what their needs are before our own particular needs.
1: Yeah, right. And, you know, sometimes it's about co-treating. A lot of times I co-treated my veteran patients with the peer that I was working with and that changed the dynamics because I think, you know, in the military, sometimes there's sort of more of a team environment, like we're going to do this as a team. So just adding one person takes it out of that medical model, one-on-one, patient and therapist uh, kind of model. I was able to kind of restructure things a little bit to say, the peer and I are going to work with you. And so different pieces of the work, you know, he might take the lead on or I might take the lead on other pieces of the work. But we kind of all put our heads together and it changed the dynamic um, to us three, working as a team um, in terms of what the veteran wanted to achieve for him or herself. Um, and that felt like a good and important shift as well um, with my patients. What do you think?
0: No, I, I absolutely agree. As I'm, uh, as I'm hearing you, you, you did not take a um, position of expertise that I am the doctor literally, or, or I am the, the professional and you're not. Um, I have again, this, this anecdotal idea that, um, I've seen it a lot when veterans, um, will go into say a med management provider and they'll just do whatever the, the med management provider says, because they're the guy or gal with the, the piece of paper on the wall. When I was in the military, I was listening to the guy or the gal with piece of paper on the wall, right? So you're the expert. I'm not, I listen to you. Um, and, and you took that sort of hierarchical relationship, and you said we're all on the same level. I'm, I'm not. I'm bringing you up to my level because this is about as much you, the veteran, and I'm going to bring in my team. And that's the teamwork aspect, as you said, is another thing that veterans are familiar with. And the more we can get veterans familiar with and understanding about mental health, the more likely they are to access it and then benefit from it.
1: Right. I mean, I think there's so much about transition that is about helping veterans make the shift away from that. I outrank you or you outrank me kind of mentality to something where we're actually working together on something. So I think there's a real cost when a provider and I've, I've written about this quite a bit when a provider really says, you know, I'm the doctor and you're the patient, particularly with veterans. Um, I think, we have a responsibility to help kind of recalibrate the individual's sense of, of rights and their freedoms, um, to really make decisions about what the best way forward is and create a relationship that's fundamentally collaborative and, and mutually respectful. Um, so, yeah, I'm not big on coming in um, as a doctor, but more really trying to show veterans that they can trust me as a doc. Um, those two things are not the same. To me, and so I've really kind of worked on how I can shift my practice and my stance with my patients so that I'm not so much um, a doctor but a doc.
0: And it goes back to the idea of medics, right? All medics, and and I've never known a, a medic with an MD or a DO or a PhD, but all the medics are called docs, right? And you trust a doc. At one point, I got, I cranked my ankle in, a, in Iraq and I trusted my doc a little too much because he didn't tell me to go get it checked out when mm-hmm. I should have. But uh, but yes, there is that idea of, you know, well, I trust doc. And, and there is that, you know, that level of, again, almost acceptance and, and, and brought into the tribe.
1: Yeah, that's why the, the name means so much to me when veterans um, kind of, you know, sort of refer to me as Doc Springer. It means something to me. It talks about, you know, the trust that we develop with each other, the mutual respect that we have, um, the collaboration, and the way we're both going to pull in the same direction, um, not with one one person outranking the other for any reason. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really critical to how I see working with veterans.
0: Oh, that's really great. And, and, uh, before we started talking, you had mentioned that along with your work with TAPS, you, you've got some other things coming down the pipe.
1: Yeah. One of my, you know, 3am labors of love that I started, uh, before I started at TAPS was working on a book about the hidden pain that, um, I think really eats people alive until they really, and am not to say here that suicide risk can be reduced to one thing. You know, if anything, I know more than maybe most people that um, suicide is the result of a perfect storm of stress. It's never just one factor, one cause. You no know, one person creates uh, suicide risk. But um, really thinking about all of the, the hidden pain that I saw as a, um, as a doc with my veterans and thinking about that process of moving away from that clinical role and how I can help other people um, that are coming into the VA, that are coming into community agencies, private organizations that are trying to build that kind of trust that I've been able to build with veterans. You know, how do we build that trust? How do we reduce stigma? How do we help them talk about their hidden pain? How do we help them move through really challenging things um, like grief and loss? Um, How do we help them discover a meaningful life after the transition out of the military? So that's hopefully going to come out sometime this year. It's been a long labor of love, late, late nights um, and hard to predict when things will come out, but I'm hoping to bring that forward sometime in 2019.
0: You know, and that's great. And I have this idea. It's, um, you know, we're not esoteric keepers of knowledge, right? You know, this is one of the, uh, especially in, in maybe an academic community, the the one with the, the, the long list of things um, that they know that other people don't, you know, kind of gives them a hierarchy. Um, but as you had mentioned, the suicide rate across the nation, and especially in the populations that we serve, um, it's too great to keep this knowledge to ourselves. Um, you know, we give it away and give it away freely. This is my um, you know, the whole drive behind the blog and the podcast for me is to, um, to help others know, not know what I know. I'm not saying that I'm the expert, but, but at least to be able to say, this is what has been seen to work. And this is how we can reach the individuals. And that, that sounds a lot like, as you said, how TAPS is going to Montana to share what they've learned. Um, but then you're able to take what you've learned and how you've developed an entrance into the tribe and how you've gotten accepted and share that knowledge with other clinicians so that they can be more effective in working with veterans.
1: Well, and thank you for what you said, because it's so true. It's, this is not a book just for people who want to work with veterans. This is a book about um, the war on hopelessness that we're fighting as a society. It's a book that I hope will really help people across society because the really interesting thing that I learned in working with veterans is the the thought that these are some of the strongest people in our society who have faced some of the most difficult challenges um, that humans face, and they struggle with hopelessness at times. And so really I think what I learned from that work really helped me understand the shape of what true character is, what courage is, um, and a lot of insights about the bonds of love that keep people in the fight whether they're veterans or first responders or people in society that are protectors, you know, mothers, fathers, people that would lay their lives down for other people, uh, people you wouldn't predict might struggle with hidden pain. So many people are struggling with hidden pain that the book is really designed to reach those people um, with insights that I learned from working with veterans, but I hope for, for the benefit of many, many more people.
0: No, that's great. I I often explain to veterans that I work with that, and and again, not like you, not trying to reduce it down to one single thing, um, but suicide is an attempt in pain, uh, it's suffering really, but pain unending is is suffering, um, whether that be physical pain, spiritual pain, moral pain, psychological pain, but but really it's an attempt to stop pain, um, and and in your case, what you're talking about, if that pain is hidden, those people who may be able to help relieve that pain don't know that there's something there to relieve
1: i had a conversation um just last week with the marine who talked about um meeting up with a former uh battle buddy and uh, actually somebody who was who outranked him and that person um, brought up the topic of fear when you're in a combat zone you know, that sometimes we don't even admit to feeling intense fear when you're about to, uh, you know, go into combat and things are about to go kinetic. And so just talking about the fear that they experienced helped both of them just dissolve that fear, the shame around the fear that's generated when those things stay hidden. So there is a real and um, just profound power in flushing these things out with people that are safe to hear them and that uh don't think any differently of you that you can just reckon with them and, and confront them head on uh to really move through them um so that's what you know my work is is fundamentally about i'm so honored to work with taps um, we're doing so much work across the country with really looking at uh changing culture and changing messaging and supporting those who have been impacted um, by suicide loss. So yeah, yeah, no, I'm I'm grateful for this opportunity.
0: Yeah, no, and and I'm grateful that you uh, you came on the show to talk about it. If if people wanted to reach out and learn more about you, about TAPS, um, about you know how they can get involved because TAPS is in every state, you know, every city, every state in the nation and internationally. How can they find out more about that?
1: Yeah, so the best place would probably be online at uh, www.taps.org backslash suicide. Taps.org backslash suicide. Um, taps.org is also our, our general web landing page with all of the services for all kinds of loss. And then the suicide-specific uh, subpage is my team and all of the training and consultation And the National Military Suicide Survivor Seminar that we will be hosting in Phoenix um, in October. So uh, that would be a good place to start. And I've got my bio and everything online as well
0: there. That's great. And I'll make sure to, to have those links in the show notes. And, uh, and, and absolutely, as I mentioned before, um, we started talking and, and even right now is when the book comes out, feel free to come back on. I'd love to be able to talk about it and, and hear, you know, how it's, how it's gone as far as, um, uh, how it's finally developed in the launch and everything else.
1: Thanks, Dwayne. It's really been a pleasure today. Thank
0: you. Yeah. Thank you. You're listening to Headspace & Timing, where we're trying to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health. I always enjoy having mental health professionals who are not veterans come on the show. I often hear from veterans that they won't talk to a mental health professional who isn't a combat veteran, and if that's true for them, that's okay, but it's not necessarily true. Clinicians like Doc Springer prove that you don't have to be a veteran to help veterans. It doesn't mean that you don't have to prepare either, though. Helping a veteran through their mental health concerns is not like helping a veteran with physical health issues. As she said in our conversation, anyone who wants to work with veterans needs to put the work in to understand the unique experiences that veterans have. I would also like to share some information about suicide prevention and postvention. The PsychArmor Institute has launched online courses in suicide prevention, intervention, and postvention. Doc Springer recorded the first two videos of a 15-video series, Barriers to Treatment and Postvention Healing After Suicide. She discusses barriers to veterans' mental health treatment as well as actions following suicide that can help promote healing. The courses are part of PsychArmor Institute's new portfolio on suicide prevention, intervention, and postvention, sponsored by the NFL Foundation. If you recall, we had Marjorie Morrison, the founder of PsychArmor, on the podcast back in episode 52. And their catalog of videos is a great place to start for anyone who's interested in learning more about how to address the epidemic of veteran suicide. If you want to check out these videos, the links will be in the show notes. Thanks for taking the time to check us out. If you want to find the show notes for this episode, go to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash HST116. We're always looking for guests. You can drop me a line at info at VeteranMentalHealth.com to recommend guests, or you go to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash guests to fill out a suggestion or request. Our thanks this month go to Give an Hour and the Campaign to Change Direction. Don't forget, we'll be joining them for the Week to Change Direction from June 9th through the 15th. If you want to see how you can too, go to ChangeDirection.org.
2: A Week to Change Direction will happen anywhere and everywhere people and organizations want to be part of this change. Give an Hour will provide toolkits with suggestions and ideas for how you or your organization can participate in a Week to Change Direction. Or you can create your own.
0: Just a reminder that the guests and information in this show are for educational purposes only and not meant to be considered professional advice. While Doc Springer and I are practicing therapists, we're not your therapist. If something you heard makes you think that you should talk to somebody, then reach out to do so. I'd like to thank Doc Todd for giving us permission to use his track, Not Alone, from his album Combat Medicine. Doc's trying to bring the discussion about federal mental health out of the darkness, and you can see all of his work at therealdoctod.com. Make sure to join us next week for another great episode. Hit subscribe on your podcast player of choice so you don't miss it. And until then, remember veterans, you're not alone. Ever.
3: The struggle is real, found a feast and lost a soul. Eventually my drinking, it got out of control. There in darkness, I roam, struggling to find home. See, suddenly death didn't feel so alone. 22 a day, destination unknown. It could have been avoided if you picked up the phone. So I guess, all we get is the tone Nothing but bone weeds Overgrown, pushing up stones I've triumphed over enemies Co-creating enemies Broke out facilities that try to put an end to me R.I.P. I'd rather grind in tranquility Often in Tennessee, embrace my ability